This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast, June 20, 2022. However, I'll be honest, it is not June 20th yet. I'm recording this on Father's Day. So today is actually the 19th. Uh, Killing two birds with one stone, actually, this weekend. So Father's Day, um, but also my 23rd wedding anniversary today. So shout out to Tammy. Uh, thanks for putting up with me for 23 years. Um, got to go have a fun meal with her yesterday. Uh, we drove down to Laguna beach and, and ate at a little restaurant that overlooks the ocean. So had a great meal, spent some time chatting about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the last 23 years. So happy anniversary to us. Um, and then yeah, father's day. So woke up this morning uh, my family had all gone in together on a Nespresso machine for me, so that was fun. Got to come downstairs, uh, play around with that. Uh, my middle daughter and I did a few drink concoctions to test out the machine, and yeah, wonderful family. Thank you so much for all the love and all the things. So yeah, so that's where we're at. Uh, let's dive in. Today's Minute of Transparency, I'm just going to call this Ford LTDs and Mazda Miatas. So when I look back on my life, I've always been a little self-conscious about my driving record. Not so much the the interaction with police, <laughs> the speeding tickets and, and tickets for driving through stop signs, that kind of thing. Uh, if anything, that's more of a badge of honor, I guess, <laughs> based on my driving style. Uh, but it's the other things, right? It's the things that I did as I was learning to drive, as I was testing the limits of certain cars, trying things out, stuff like that. And I think that the reason why I've been a little self-conscious is because that I thought I was unique, right? I thought that I wasn't a great driver, which led to some of these negative experiences. But as I've matured and, and had conversations with other men my own age, <clears throat> I find that their stories aren't all that different from my own. Uh, they too report bumps, scrapes, bruises, accidents, all, all sorts of things that, that they went through learning to drive. And it's very similar to the things that I went through. So because of that, I guess I've become a little less self-conscious. Um, but just wanted to share a few quick stories about that. So I'm assuming that like many of you, I grew up driving the family car um, back in the 80s, 90s. It was just most of my uh, friend group, you know, they didn't have their own cars. They, they drove their family's car. And so that was the car that you learned on, right? That's the car that you learned to drive in. You learned to park in parking lots all those kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, you have the occasional issues. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there was a couple times I backed into another car in a parking lot, things like that. But then there were the big things. And there's there were two pretty big things that I can remember looking back. Um, 
The first was related to winter. So we lived in Illinois, just outside of Chicago. And I'm pretty sure I'd driven in snow before because I, I think I had a pretty good understanding of what you needed to do and, and how you needed to drive a little more carefully, stuff like that. But at one point, I remember thinking, oh, man, it's so much fun. My dad, like when my dad drives in snow, he'll go around corners and he'll like let the back kind of slide out a little bit and then he'll overcorrect and, you know, let it slide the other way. And uh, it was just, it's always so much fun, right? And I'm like, I, I'm sure I can do that. I know I can do that. So I took the family car, which was a Ford LTD station wagon, right? This big old boat of a car. And I can't remember if I just asked my parents if I could go to a friend's house or or what I did to get them to let me drive the car. But I got in the car and I started backing out and, and my brother was like over in the yard and he's like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go drifting, get in the car, get in the car. So he came over, he got in the car and we spent the next 10, 15, 20 minutes driving around the neighborhood on purpose, drifting, right? Sliding the car around just to see what it felt like. And, and we were having a good old time until we weren't. (laughs) So I went around one corner and I got a little too excited and the car slid all the way across the road into the, into the curb. And you know, like when you, when you have enough momentum and you go into a curb, what happens? You're right. Both of the tires on the right side went flat, broke the beat on the tires and both tires went flat. So obviously I didn't want to drive it because I wasn't sure if I was going to break something else by driving it. So my brother and I get out of the car and funny enough, we were literally one block away from our house. So we turn the corner and we start heading toward our house. And there's my dad in the driveway with this funny look on his face. And he's like, uh, what's wrong? What are you doing? So told him the whole story. Um, he came over <laughs> and to this day, I think he just told us get in the house and then he went and took care of it. But I don't really know how he took care of it. You know what I mean? Because the, the beads on the tire were, were broken. So, um, yeah, I don't even know how he, he probably took the tires off both tires. He probably, you know, drove in with another car, took them to the shop, um, had them repaired and then brought them back and put it back on. But whatever the case, um, that was my first experience really, uh, messing up when driving the car. The next one is a little bit worse. Um, but at the same time, very similar. So at this point we had moved up into Michigan and I was uh, going to college and I was working, uh, at a dairy down, um, just south of the the campus. And I would drive back and forth and back and forth to this dairy every single day for my shift. And to get there, you basically drove down this long dirt road. And then in the middle, there was this um, small bridge that went over a little creek. And every day, back and forth, back and forth, I'd drive down this dirt road and go through the bridge, um, and then come up the hill back up to campus. And over time, I just got kind of cocky and, and I would drive faster and I would drive faster. Um, 
And I would drive down this road, I would go over the bridge, and then I would let the car drift on the dirt road just a little bit and then get it back on track as I made my way up the hill. And you could see for a long distance. So I was never really concerned that another car might be coming or or anything like that. And so over the summer, I just kept getting better and better and better at drifting this Ford LTD station wagon still um, on this dirt road. So one day, I think we we had gone to church and a friend of mine were, were driving around and um, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to I'll take you down and show you where I work. So my friend is sitting in the passenger seat and we drove all the way down to the dairy. I showed him this big farm where I worked. Um, and then on our way back, I'm like, oh, this would be fun. I'll, sh- I'll show him how I do this thing every day when I'm coming back from work. So I start picking up speed. I get up to 50, 60, whatever miles an hour. Um, I go through the bridge and I start my little drift and I am drifting just a little too far. So I correct and I overcorrect and the car spins back the other way. I proceed to spin back and forth, back and forth a couple times. And then just because of my speed or whatever, I was going a little too fast the whole car spun around. So I'm now I'm going backwards and I, I end up in a ditch and what happens? The two tires on the left side come off their beads just like before. Only this time I'm in a ditch. It's dirty. It's messy. It's nasty. Um, and so I had to call my dad. Uh, he came and, um, helped get it pulled out. Um, and then proceeded to fix the car probably the same way he did the last time. Um, so yeah, those are my two crazy stories, uh, learning to drive. The funny thing with the, with the friend, and, and maybe it was the same thing with my brother, you know, maybe I was showing off, maybe I was showing off to my brother and that's why I, I did what I did or who knows, maybe I would have done the same thing if I was by myself, but definitely with my friend, um, when I was coming back from that, uh, from the dairy on that dirt road, I know that I was pushing it, right? I was pushing it faster than I normally did when I was by myself, just because he was in the car, because it was peer pressure, I think. Um, but at any rate, that was two of the big incidents of me growing up learning to drive. And then I had kids. Uh, and one of my kids is a male, Tyler, and uh, he's already following in my footsteps. So I would say that Tyler is even more into cars than I was at his age. In fact, I, it's probably just a difference of viewpoint, right? I guess the way I looked at it, I was a fan of driving. I loved to drive. It was just something that was exciting to me. It didn't really matter what I was driving. I just wanted to drive. And I feel like Tyler is less a fan of driving and more just a fan of cars in general. So when he got to the age where he could drive cars, he was all about getting his own car. And his fascination at the time was the original body style Miata, the old Mazda Miatas with the, you know, convertible top and the pop-up headlights in the front. So I helped him look around and eventually he got a 1992 red Miata. He loves the whole JDM thing, so he's done some modifications. It's got 
low profile racing tires, um, all that good stuff. And he's had a few incidents similar to what I had as well. So the one I want to talk about is not because he's a bad driver, more because he was a new driver, a driver who hadn't had some of the experiences that an um, older, more veteran driver would have had. So in California, we just don't get rain, at least not very often. And when we do, it's a pretty big deal. You know, when, when Tammy and I moved to uh, Southern California, we, we would make fun of people because it would start raining and they, they would literally go from driving 60 miles an hour down to about 35, 40. And we were just, we were just dumbfounded. We're like, it's just rain. What are you doing? Like (laughs) this is not a big deal. You should try driving on ice. Like we had to back in the Midwest. Um, but there are some good reasons why you should drive a little bit slower in Southern California when it's raining. First, because you don't get rain very often. And so what happens is when it does rain, all of that oil and all of that nasty stuff that's on the road and it's built up over time loosens up a little bit and it can actually be slippery, right? Now, they, they tell you this in the Midwest as well. They say, oh, yeah, for the first five or 10 minutes of a rain, you know, rainstorm, be careful because the oil uh, mixing with the water uh, will make it kind of slippery. But nothing like it is in California where you have months and months and months worth of oil on the road and it stays slippery for a while. Now, the other problem in Southern California is that they don't design the roads for runoff, right? They just, it's just not something they even think about. So what happens when you get a significant downpour is the water just sits on the road, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have the uh, roundedness, if you will, (laughs) that, that roads have in the Midwest where the water will hit and it'll immediately start running off toward the edges of the road. So he was driving his girlfriend home uh, one night and it was pouring pretty bad. And he knew that it was a little uh, touch and go. So they, they drove pretty slow uh, getting back to her house. But then when he, when he dropped her off, he turned around, he got back on the toll road uh, and he was going a pretty good speed. And at some point he hit one of these perfect, you know, pools of water that was just sitting there because of the downpour and he hydroplaned and I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Uh, but I have a feeling he spun around two or three times, um, and ended up on the side of the road with his heart pounding. Uh, luckily there weren't a lot of other cars on the road at the time. I think he had full three lanes of, of empty, you know, highway to himself. So it was the perfect scenario for this to happen. Um, but it did. And he, he called Tammy and I, it was late at night. He called and he's like, I'm just sitting here on the side of the road. My heart's pounding. He's like, I just need to get myself together and then get back on the road and and I'll be home in in a few minutes. So again, crazy incident, crazy scenario, but not that he was driving crazy. Just, it was a situation that he had not been a part of. He hadn't ever felt what it felt like to hydroplane. And so this was a perfect learning experience for that. So anyways, what do these stories have to do with our conversation today? Well, today's topic is about making assumptions. 
So in my driving situation, I think the assumption that I was operating under was that nothing bad would happen to me because I was such an amazing driver. And in my son's situation, I think the assumption was that the rain was a bit annoying, but that it couldn't possibly do something as bad as spinning you out. And in both situations, it was the assumption that led to the behavior, which eventually led to the problems that we ran into. So for me, the broken beads on tires and the stalled vehicles to Tyler hydroplaning and ending up on the side of the road. In essence, the moral of the story, the underlying message here is that faulty assumptions can and often will lead to difficulties in life. Let me read that one more time, slightly different way. Faulty assumptions can and often lead to difficult life experiences. So let's dive in. Today's topic, transcending assumptions. The first section, what assumptions do to you. The second, popular assumptions. And then we'll wrap things up with getting out of the assumption business. Number one, what assuming does to you. So this isn't rocket science, apparently. In fact, I think most people have heard the phrase, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. Uh, This was coined by Felix Unger on the TV show, The Odd Couple, back in the early 70s, I think. And strangely enough, it stood the test of time. And usually when something stands the test of time, it's because we believe that it's at least partly true. Now, obviously, not every assumption gets us into trouble, right? It's not an absolute. But I think we've all had a few assumptions blow up in our faces, right? So we understand the danger of making assumptions. Now, let's back up the bus real quick and let's get working definitions from where else? Dictionary.com. So let's start with the root word, which is assume. According to dictionary.com, to assume is to take for granted or without proof. For example, I assume that everyone wants peace. Next, let's look at the word assumption. So in both definitions, we see the making of an assumption is coming to a conclusion when we don't actually know if it's true or not, or taking things for granted, expecting that something will happen without fully knowing that it will. So that's the foundation, really, for our entire episode. So let's get practical and let's look at a few real-life scenarios. Um, I did some uh, a Google search on funny assumptions or funny assumption stories, and I found an article by Adrian Neumeyer uh, on the website tacticalprojectmanager.com. And he tells a couple stories, and so I just want to read them to you as examples of making assumptions and what that can do. So the first is a funny story about his couch. And he says, don't make this mistake. (laughs) Here goes. Take a look at this picture. What do you see? Right. It's a couch. My wife and I, we own this couch and I hate it. It looks like it's from an 80s movie. Not at all my style, but it's the only couch we have. My wife, Sonia, and I, we spend our evenings on it, watching Netflix, reading books or writing a new article for you on tacticalprojectmanager.com. I know you might be asking, why the heck did you buy it if you don't like it, Adrian? Good question. Here's the answer. Seven years ago, my wife and I were standing in a furniture store. 
we needed a new couch. And as I tend to be quite dominant in buying decisions, I wanted to let my wife pick the couch of her dreams. So we got the big fat elephant. But as it turned out recently, my wife explained that she didn't really want this couch at all. I said, I thought you wanted to have this couch. My wife said, no, I never liked it. I thought it was your favorite. Can you imagine how stupid we felt a thousand dollars later for a couch that neither of us wanted? What was the problem? My wife and I were trapped by a false assumption. This is a funny little story, but it shows you what stupid situations a false assumption can get you into. We can laugh, no one got hurt, and you can say it's a luxury problem. However, Adrian goes on to explain that sometimes wrong assumptions can have devastating consequences. So he tells another story. This one he calls Air Canada Flight 143 ran out of fuel. Flight 143 took off with a broken fuel management system. The pilots had assumed that the issue wasn't new and that service was possible under these circumstances. To make things worse, the ground crew had mixed up gallons and kilograms, and the plane left Montreal with half the amount of fuel needed. And the crew was not aware of it. Fortunately, all passengers and crew members survived. The pilots managed to glide the plane down to a nearby airport with zero engine power. The lesson? Never make assumptions when you have no evidence, and when an incorrect assumption could turn into a nightmare. So there you go. Two good examples of um, situations where assumptions caused problems. One that was pretty innocuous, right? It ended up just being a couch that someone didn't like. But the second story showed just how devastating an assumption can be, right? An entire plane full of people could have been impacted by that assumption. So that's section one, how assumptions impact us. Number two, popular assumptions. So the funny thing is assumptions can come in many shapes and sizes. In fact, simplicable.com suggests that there are 12 types, and I'm just going to read the list to you. Unrecognized, unstated, unquestioned, naive, pragmatic, productive, unproductive, likely facts, predictions, pessimistic, sour grapes, and optimistic. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these and explain what they mean, but if you're super interested, I did put a link to the full article in my show notes so that you can do follow-up research on that. What I find interesting about this list is that optimism and pessimism are both on the list. And we're going to spend a bit of time in the next section talking about these two. But for now, I just want to try to simplify things. So let's see if we can get the list of 12 down to about five, right? And I'm going to refer to these as the five popular assumptions that we often make. So here we go. Assumption number one, assuming out of ignorance. So this is really what I would consider our default setting. Why? Because as human beings, we need an explanation for everything. We aren't really good with ambiguity, right? Anytime we meet a new person or encounter a new event or a new situation, anytime something is changing in our world, um, new changes are introduced into our life, 
the first thing that happens is our brain goes to town because our brain needs answers. So it starts the process of looking for those answers. And unfortunately, if we aren't actively disputing our thinking, these answers show up in the form of assumptions. Now, I'm not calling the person in this scenario ignorant. I'm saying that the assumptions rise to the top because of ignorance, right? Which is not having a factual explanation readily available. So in my son's case, hydroplaning in a Miata with racing tires happened out of ignorance, not because he's ignorant, but because he just didn't understand how hydroplaning worked yet. He had never experienced it. And before you laugh at my son, ask yourself how many times you've done the same thing, right? We call this learning the hard way. If you ever look back on your life and say, oh yeah, I learned that the hard way, then you'll understand. It's the same thing. And we've all been there. Number two, assuming without fact-checking. Now, at first glance, it might look like I'm splitting hairs here, right? Because ignorance is very similar to not having all the facts, right? Well, sort of. I wanted to split them out because to me, assuming out of ignorance is often an innocent thing, right? Like I talked about with Tyler driving his Miata. He was innocently driving because he didn't assume that something bad was going to happen. So that's ignorance out of innocence. It's an assumption you make without even realizing that you should be doing fact-checking. Whereas assuming without fact-checking, to me, is a much more willful act, a much more willful behavior. It's choosing to fly blind, if you will. A decision not to check the facts, even when you know it's probably the right thing to do. I believe this happens all the time on social media. Everything from people bashing politicians to racist comments to conspiracy theories, many of these posts are assumptions people are making without even checking the facts first. They're emotional responses that just seem to come out sideways. Things maybe we were taught as a child, things we picked up from the culture we were part of, um, or even political ideas that are just spit out but never checked to see if they're actually valid. Number three, assuming based on magic. I love this one, right? Because we all do it. And typically it's for the right reasons, right? We just want life to get better. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. Uh, We want things to be up and to the right. But unfortunately, this can be the origin of many troublesome assumptions. Even the phrase, don't worry, things will get better. That's 100% assumption because you really don't know that, right? After the first wave of COVID, we all assumed things were going to get better, right? I mean, how bad could it get? (laughs) Well, then came the second wave, the third wave, even a fourth wave of the pandemic. Maybe somebody's trying to beat the magical thinking out of us once and for all. Number four, assuming based on you. So another massive area in our lives where assumptions come from uh, is within, based on selfishness, blind spots, internalized beliefs that we don't even know exist. It's when you look at another person and you assume things like, they'll act a certain way because that's how I would act, or they think the same way I do, 
or they should like the same things I like. Uh, they've heard all the same songs and they've seen all the same TV shows that I've seen. Uh, they should operate under the same worldview as me, religiously, politically, and the list goes on and on. So some of the things we catch ourselves on, right? And we rethink it. You know, we say something or we act a certain way and then we're like, oh, that's not right. Or that's not really true. How do I know that's true? But other things just come right out without a filter. Similar to systemic racism, where you have to do some serious digging to really understand how deep it goes. These assumptions are often so ingrained in our brains that we need a microscope in order to see how truly ingrained they are. And finally, number five, we have assuming based on the past. Now, this one really hurts, especially for me, because I truly believe that I'm a realist, right? I look for patterns, trends, and things that suggest certain outcomes. But at the end of the day, these are nothing but assumptions. For example, a person can treat you poorly three times in a row, suggesting that that's just how they will treat you in the future. But then the fourth time, they're as nice as can be. Don't believe me? Have you ever heard the story of Ebenezer Scrooge? What about the Grinch? People who made assumptions about these two fine chaps got slapped in the face when those assumptions came to a shocking end. So too, if you get too dogmatic about something just because you saw it a few times, you may not see the big change coming. Another example of this can be seen in mental health issues like low self-esteem, anger, anxiety, depression. Not only can these stem from assuming out of ignorance and assuming without fact-checking, but they often stem from making false assumptions based on your past, right? Believing that things in the past will always be with you or always be true, that bad things in the past predict bad things in the future, that people in the future will in the future will hurt you the same way that people in the past did, etc., etc. Now, are these the end-all, be-all assumptions? Of course not. I just chose five of the most common, and I wanted to give them a, a unique name so that they were easy to remember. That way, they're more helpful to us moving forward. Look at it this way. Are you more likely to remember the list of 12 or my list of five? So let me read through those one more time. The five assumptions that I feel like we fall into on a regular basis. First, assuming out of ignorance. Second, assuming without fact-checking. Third, assuming based on magic. Four, assuming based on you. And finally, assuming based on the past. Number three, getting out of the assumption business. So what are we to do with this tool belt full of assumptions that we each have? Well, I would suggest that we take each assumption out, look it over, and then get rid of ones that we can't prove to be true. Sounds pretty simple, right? But obviously it's not. Assumptions are everywhere. Some we see and others are so ingrained that we may not even perceive them to be assumptions. Uh, we can actually get to the place where assumptions have turn themselves into strongly held beliefs that we have about people, places, things, politics, religion, all of those things. And that's when they can become the most dangerous. So assumptions like these, 
assumptions that are pretty ingrained and pretty dangerous will probably require the following process to get rid of them. Step one, acknowledgement. So this is literally the first step, right? Seeing something for what it is, recognizing that you're holding on to something that isn't based on anything solid. We've all heard the phrase, knowing is half the battle. Well, that's it. That's step one. It's coming to the understanding that there is actually a problem. Step two, research and disputing. So we talked a little bit about this in the conscience-driven therapy series. It's, it's actually a core element of therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, um, and other cognitive therapies. So the theory suggests that the reason we have problems is not because of the problem itself. It's because of our thinking about the problem. And typically because our thinking is not rational. So disputing or the disputation process is us challenging these irrational thoughts. When it comes to assumptions, the same is true. Once we've identified them, we have to do our research and then dispute their validity. Only then can we move the assumption into one of two categories, which we'll talk about in a minute. Step three, categorization. So once we've disputed the specific assumption, it's time to place it in one of two categories. The first category is correct. So this is an assumption that turns out to be factual. Or we can put it in the other category, which is incorrect. And this is an assumption that doesn't pass the validity test. Step four, act accordingly. So this step really doesn't even need to be a step, right? It goes without saying. You take all of your incorrect assumptions and you either rework them or you throw them away. But the assumptions that turned out to be correct, the ones that you could actually fact check and prove to be true, you can continue to live with, right? They can become actual beliefs that you live by. Okay, let me read through those one more time, then we'll move on. So step one was acknowledgement. Step two, research or dispute those assumptions. Step three was categorization. And then step four, acting accordingly. Okay, so the final thing I wanted to touch on is the whole worldview or mental attitude that each of us have. Now, let me preface this by saying this probably won't pass the wife test, but but we'll see. Um, after the recording goes live, uh, if she chooses to listen to this episode, because I have no idea if she will, um, it'll be interesting to see what she has to say about it. Because uh, my wife considers herself an optimist. And she loves to point out the fact that I lean toward being a pessimist. And of course, every time she brings that up, every time we have this conversation, I say the same thing. I am not a pessimist. I'm a realist. And then she laughs and then we move on. But I'm really not joking when I say that, right? I've spent a lot of time reading books by Albert Ellis, William Glasser, Aaron Beck, champions in the field of psychology and specifically cognitive psychology. So maybe this is where my fascination with the concept of realism came from. All that talk about rational versus irrational thinking, uh, how we create our own disturbance within ourselves and the importance of disputing our thinking. Uh, it's all led me to the same conclusion. 
one that was just corroborated in the list of 12 assumption types that we read above, because optimism and pessimism were actually listed as types of assumptions. So here's my theory. I would suggest that the only healthy way to view life is through the lens of a realist. Now, I'm not just saying that because I believe I'm a realist. I'm saying that because it seems like that's the most rational way to view the world. So let's walk through the other options and see why. Right? So the first you have optimists. Positive outlook on life most of the time. Um, you know, more likely to see something as positive than negative. But here's the problem. Choosing to look at the future or future events in the positive every single time is based on an assumption that it will turn out that way. And if it doesn't turn out that way, what do you feel? You feel conflicted, right? Because you assumed that everything would work out and then it didn't. Next, we have the pessimists who are basically the opposite, right? A negative outlook on life most of the time. Very similar to optimists, they choose to look at future events in the very negative way every single time based on the assumption that they will always turn out that way. But again, there is no proof that the event in the future will turn out one way or the other. And if things turn out positive for the pessimist rather than negative, they're left wondering why. And finally, we have idealists. So idealists really get caught up in the whole assuming based on magic thing that we talked about above, right? They have an ideal or preferred view of the world around them and for their future. And so they make assumptions based on these magical ideas. But when things don't work out that way, similar to with optimists, they're left with questions and frustration. Now, if I had to per pick a person to be around, I would definitely pick the optimist or the idealist every day of the week. I mean, even though there might be some irrational thinking there or some assumptions being made, at least they're positive and mostly upbeat people. The pessimist would be a terrible person to be around, right? Because <laughs> it's just a very negative worldview. And that would probably be too much to handle over time. But let's finish up with the realist and, and kind of their approach to the world. So a realist should have a pretty balanced approach to the world around them. They understand that both good things and bad things happen. They understand that one side does not necessarily trump the other. For example, just because there is the potential for something bad to happen, that doesn't mean that it will. And what will happen is if you spend too much time on the side of bad happening and you focus on that over and over and over again, pretty soon you're going to wind up in the camp with the pessimists, right? Because that is a very pessimistic view. Whereas a true realist should have a much more balanced approach to viewing things potentially being good and bad. Next, the realist will often take steps to protect themselves from bad things. So even though we can't prove that bad things will happen, there's still a good reason to put things in place as if they will. So here's a crude example. A realist should be willing to wear seatbelts simply because there is the possibility of getting into an accident, right? Because it's just the smart thing to do. 
Now, based on this worldview, a realist should be less prone to go to extremes and to forming assumptions about people, places, or things that are really lopsided one way or the other. Now, again, the realist is not the perfect example of a worldview, um, but based on cognitive psychology and the whole idea that your thinking will impact your behaving and your emotional state, it makes sense that being a realist is the most rational way to view the world. Now, let's land the plane. This week, ask yourself the following questions. First, do you fall into the assumption trap? If so, how often? And what impact has it had on your life and your relationships? Number two, what assumptions are you most susceptible to? So again, we talked about assuming out of ignorance. We talked about assuming without fact-checking, assuming based on magic, assuming based on ourselves, and assuming based on the past. Which of these five do you find yourself falling into the most? Number three, what would it take to decrease the number of assumptions we make this week? So let's try the four-step process on a specific assumption this week and see if we can't figure out if it's correct or incorrect. And then finally, where do you fall on the mental attitude scale? Are you an optimist, a pessimist, an idealist, a realist? And what would it look like for you to move a little closer to the realistic worldview this week? Not that you have to completely change, right? There's nothing wrong with being an optimist, even, even being a pessimist. I mean, it is what it is. We all have different personalities. But instead of going to the extreme, what would it look like to be a little more realistic within your worldview? And that's it. Thank you so much for stopping by, for hanging out with us. Love having you here. Uh, just a quick reminder that you do have the power to help transcend human grow. You can tell a family member or a friend about us. Uh, you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, these are all great ways to get the word out and to have more people find the show. Next week, um, our episode is going to be called Transcending the Dark. Now, this is going to be an interesting episode, and it's probably one I should have done closer to Halloween, but uh, join us as we discuss some of the dark side of the human condition, right? Satan's playground and his ultimate goal uh, for each of us. So until then, have a great week, everybody. Continue to work on those assumptions. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.